Let's take our Bibles this morning to the Genesis chapter 12. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 12. <clears throat> and I'm just going to read verse 1 this morning as we begin. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. Let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this most wonderful day. We thank you, Lord, that we can uh, gather together in this place and come together around your word, spend time considering the truths therein. Lord, we pray that this morning you would uh, speak to our hearts, you would teach us, instruct us through your word. Lord, I pray that you would empower me through the Spirit now, that it would be your words, it would be your thoughts this morning, and you give us understanding of your word. And that we leave this morning knowing that we've been in your presence and singing your praises, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, last Sunday evening, uh, for those of you who were here or listened online, we looked at, at the start of chapter 11 and we looked at uh, the city of Babel, okay, with the Tower of Babel there, and we, uh, we looked at man's rebellion. Okay, they made that decision that they were going to uh, defy God, they were going to stand against God and stay in one place instead of spreading out as God had instructed them to. God had said to be fruitful and multiply and to replenish the earth, to fill the earth. But they were determined to stay together with this one centralized city, this centralized government, if you like, centralized civilization, uh, rather than obey the Lord. And of course, we saw that it never, never pays to rebel against God, does it? Okay? If God has a plan, God has a will, it will be done. Okay? And God forced man to obey by, as we saw, confounding the languages, uh, confusing the languages, uh, so that mankind was forced to spread out and fill the earth. And it's believed that this event, uh, the Tower of Babel, the city of Babel there, took place when a man named Peleg was born. Okay? In chapter 10, we sort of skipped over chapter 10 and the genealogy there, but chapter 10, verse 25, it says, And unto Eber was born two sons, the name of one was Peleg. For in his days was, was the earth divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And so this man Peleg says that he was named Peleg because in his days the earth was divided. And so it seems that when he's born... It's, it's around the time of this division at the, the Tower of Babel that this is when all this took place, that mankind was divided as God confu- confounded sorry, the languages. And so using the genealogy that's given to us in chapter 11, okay, chapter 11, verse 10 through to verse 26, we're given a list of the descendants of Shem. Now, I'm not going to read that list because there's a lot of names there and a bit confusing. Okay, there's a lot of list, uh, list of names there of Shem's descendants. As you look through that list there and you read that genealogy, we learn a bit of the time frame here. Okay? What we learn is that it's 125 years after Peleg's birth, and therefore the Tower of Babel, it's 125 years before Terah, the father of Abraham, comes onto the scene. Okay? So basically there's 125 years where we're not told anything about what's going on in the world. We're told about the Tower of Babel, the city of Babel, and the the dispersion of mankind, and then there's 125 years of silence in the Word of God. You know, one thing is clear, that during that 125 years of silence, God knows where 
the, the godly line is. Okay? God knows where the promised seed is. It's being preserved in the descendants of Shem. Okay? And that's why we're given that genealogy of his descendants. Okay? Chapter 11, verse uh, 10 says, These are the generations of Shem. Okay? Shem was 100 years old and begat Arafaxad two years after the flood. And then down to verse 26, and Terah. Okay? So it's from Shem to Terah. We're given this list of names. This understanding God knows where the promised line is. Okay? God is preserving them in the seed of Shem. And by the time we get now to chapter 12, the genealogy he gives us an idea as to when those events take place. Okay? Um, that's really what it's there for. It sort of gives us an understanding of when all these things take place, a time frame. So if we assume that there's no gaps in that genealogy there, okay, and there's no reason really to assume there is, yeah, there might be a couple of little gaps, but let's assume there's no gaps in that genealogy given to us there in chapter 11. What we learn is that Noah, he's still alive when Terah's on earth. Okay? He's alive when Abraham's father is 128 years old. That's when Noah finally dies. Okay? He's alive right up until then. Shem, he actually outlives Terah by 63 years. And so he's still on earth. He's still alive when Abraham is called out of the earth of the Chaldees. And in chapter 12, as we'll see this morning, when he's called out of Haran, okay? He's still alive. Shem is still on earth. He's still around. I think sometimes we forget just how close Abraham is to the start of all these things. Okay, how close Abraham is to the flood, to Noah, to Shem, to the Tower of Babel, all these events. Noah is not, uh, sorry, Abraham is not that long after all of these things take place. According to the genealogy given, the dispersion, the Tower of Babel, was 101 years after the flood. And only 326 years after that, Abraham comes onto the scene. And indeed, he's still alive. Uh, sorry, sorry. Okay, he's, he's Abraham, sorry, I made a mess of my things here, sorry. Okay, according to the genealogy given, the dispersion is 101 years after the flood, and 326 years later, Abraham leaves Haran, sorry. Okay, he leaves it her hand 326 years after the Tower of Babel. And so it's only 427 years after the flood. That's what I'm trying to get at. Okay, only 427 years, not even 500 years yet. After the flood, Abraham leaves Haran. Okay, and in the years between the flood and the Tower of Babel, the years between all this, mankind now has been spreading out all over the earth. And for the most part, mankind is rejecting God. Okay, for the most part, man is getting further away from the Lord. Okay, the Tower of Babel, we saw that was really the beginning of this, wasn't it? Okay, they were worshipping the heavens. That's why they were building this great ziggurat unto the heavens. They were worshipping false gods. And they've now taken that with them, if you like, their idolatry. They've taken it on the road. Okay, the, the dispersion didn't cure mankind of their sin. Okay, they've taken that wickedness with them as they spread out along uh, around the earth. You know, Romans chapter 1 describes perfectly the, the scene, if you like, upon the earth. Now, man did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Okay? And they turned to worshipping the creation instead of creator. But of course, you know, even though mankind in general is turned away from the Lord, God has his remnant, doesn't he? He always has his remnant. He always has those who are still seeking after him. In chapter 9, verse 26, if you remember, we saw that Shem would be the one, his family, his seed, would know God. Okay, chapter 9, verse 26, uh, it says this. 
It says, and he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem. And Canaan shall be his servant. Now we looked at this and we saw it's a prophecy about the fact that Shem, his descendants, would know the true God. Okay, and so even at this time, amongst the descendants of Shem, we assume they know the true God. Okay, and it's amongst those descendants that one man comes to the, to the front, if you like, to the front of the scene, the man Abraham. Okay, he's a descendant of Shem. You see, the wonderful thing is that God had not forgotten his promise to mankind, had he? Okay, Genesis chapter 3, what did God promise? That he would send his son to crush the head of Satan. Okay, he'd send his seed, the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come to crush the head of Satan. That was God's promise. And God has not forgotten that promise, that he's going to defeat Satan, that he's going to save mankind. God has not forgotten that. And so God now in chapter 12, God acts to separate unto himself a people, to separate unto himself a nation through whom the Savior would come, through whom the Lord Jesus Christ would come to save all of us. And so this morning, I want us to consider God's chosen servant here. I want us to consider this man, Abram. Now, chapter 12 begins with the words, it says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram. Now the Lord had said unto Abram. It sort of comes out of the blue, doesn't it? Who is this man, Abram? Who is he? Now, out of all the descendants of Shem, okay, he's not the only one. You know, Shem has quite a few descendants by now. Out of all the descendants of Shem, Abram is the man that God chooses, that God calls here. Now, the name Abram means exalted father. And indeed, we know later on God changes his name to be Abraham, which means father of a multitude. But when he's called here in chapter 12, his name is still Abram, okay, exalted father. And this is the man that God chooses to be the one through whom the promised seed will come. And as I was looking at, the, at that this week, you know, it leads to a couple of questions that I think we need to answer this morning. This is really want to focus our attention this morning on these two questions. Who is this man that God chooses? And secondly, why? Why does God choose this man, Abraham? And so let's look at the first question this morning. Who was Abram. Who was Abram? Now, to find out this information, we go back to the end of chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 27. It says, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father, Terah, in the land of his nativity, in the Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarah was barren, and she had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son's Abraham's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of the, the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came in unto Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Here we're given a bit of background information okay, to this man, Abram. We're told a number of facts, if you like, about him, which we'll briefly discuss here this morning. In verse 27, we're told that he's one of three sons. Okay? It says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and 
Haran. So he's one of three sons mentioned here of this man, Terah, okay, descendant of Shem. One of three sons, and even though he's mentioned first here in this list of sons, it doesn't seem that he's the eldest son, okay? Uh, he's, he's most likely not, okay, given the ages that are, and the, the genealogy given to us here in the Word of God. You see, uh, it indicates to us in verse 26, it says, And Terah lived 70 years, and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So it tells us that Terah is, is 70 years old when he has his first of these three sons. He's 70 years old. And we're told that he dies when he's 205, verse 32. Okay, so he's 70 when he's first born. He comes, comes into the earth. He's 205 when he dies. And so that means that Abraham can't be his firstborn. And the reason for that is that in chapter 12, verse 4, we're told that Abraham is 75 when he leaves Haran. Okay, verse 4 of chapter 12, it says, So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 70 and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And so he's 75 when he leaves Haran. And according to the New Testament, Acts chapter 7, we know that he leaves Haran when his father dies. Okay, so if his father died at 205, 75 years back, he obviously is born when his father is 130. Okay, so he's not the eldest son. More than likely, Abraham is probably the youngest son. He's probably the youngest of these three. Okay, so that means he's not really anyone important, is he? Okay, he's the youngest of the three. He's not anything important, but he's the man God chooses. We also learn from chapter 11, verse 29 to 30, as we read before, that Abraham is already married. Okay, he already has a wife named Sarai, but they have no children. Indeed, we're told here uh, that his wife is barren. Now, we're not told exactly who Sarai is here, but we know later on from the scriptures that, he's, that she is his half-sister. Okay, Genesis chapter 20, just quickly. Genesis 20. <clears throat> Genesis 20 and verse 12. It says, And yet, indeed, she is my sister. This is Abraham speaking. Okay, and yet, indeed, she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And so Sarah, Sarai, is his half-sister. Okay, he's married. He has his wife, but they have no children. She's barren. And again, this doesn't seem like someone God would choose. Okay? If God's looking for someone to be the, the father of a nation, a man who's married and has no children, indeed seems like he can't have children, isn't the logical choice in the eyes of men. Okay? But again, this is the man God is choosing. And the third thing we learn from chapter 11 is that he's living, he's dwelling in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. Verse 28, it says, And Haran died before his father, Terah, in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And then in verse 31, And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran's, uh, Haran his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, and his son Abraham's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees. And so this is where he's living. You know, this is where he has grown up. He's spent his whole life. Uh, indeed, the New Testament makes it clear that it's here in Ur that he receives his call from God. Okay, go to Acts chapter 7 with me. Acts chapter 7, sort of alluded to this passage a moment ago, but Acts chapter 7, Stephen talks about it. Acts chapter 7 and verse Verse 1. It says, Then said the high priest, 
are these things so? And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Charan, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I will show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans, and dwelt in Charan, and from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. So Acts 7 makes it clear. He's still in Ur of the Chaldees when he receives the call of the Lord, which is recorded for us in chapter 12. Okay? Chapter 12 gives us his call, but it actually happens when he's in Ur. Okay? This place called Ur, this is where he's living, this is where he's grown up, and this is where God calls him. Now, the city of Ur was located to the south of where Babel was. Okay? We looked at Babel last Sunday. Okay? It's to the south. It's in that southern Mesopotamia region. And in its day, it was a large, prosperous city. Okay? When Abraham's living there, it would have been a large, prosperous place. It was right there on the Persian Gulf. And it stood on the coast, right where the Euphrates River emptied into the sea. So it was a large port city. Okay? Now today, the remnants of the city are quite a few kilometers back from the coast because the coastline has moved okay, over the years from the sediment. But in Abraham's day, it stood right on the coast. It was a port city. Now, one commentator wrote this. He said, In olden days, it was a large and flourishing city standing on the sea and possessed of a fleet of vessels which coasted along the shores of the Indian Ocean, freighted with the products of, of the rich and fertile soil. So it was this, this flourishing city right there on the, on, the, on the ocean there, on the sea. It had ships. They were sending out merchandise. It was a prosperous place to live. But it was also a city that was steeped in idolatry. Right in the midst of the city of Ur was this large ziggurat, just like the one at the city of Babel, which we looked at last Sunday. Just like at the city of Babel, in the middle of the city of Ur was this ziggurat, built with the purpose of worshipping the heavens. And in particular, they worshipped the moon god called Nana. It was their patron deity, if you like, of the city, this moon god Nana. And the remnants of that ziggurat, you can Google it, and you can see it. It's the best preserved, or one of the best preserved in the whole region. It's still standing. But this was the place, this was the center of this city, their idolatry, worshipping the heavens, They had no desire to worship God. Remember, we're not that far from the flood. We're not that far from the Tower of Babel. Mankind's quickly turned from God, haven't they? It doesn't take them long to forget the Lord. And in all probability, this city, the city of Ur, is part of Nimrod's empire. Remember, we talked about Nimrod last Sunday evening. Chapter 10, go back there, chapter 10. In chapter 10, verse verse 8. Genesis chapter 10, verse 8, it says, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher, and builded Nineveh, and the city of Rehoboth, uh, both, sorry, and Kalah. And resin between Nineveh and Kala, and the same is a great city. This is the, 
This is the man we looked at last Sunday, this man whose name means let us rebel. He rebelled against the Lord in building Babel. He was the leader of all that. And he develops a, a, a large empire afterwards with all these cities mentioned, okay, in the land of Shinar and up towards Nineveh as well. He, he's, he's ruling over this whole region. And because Ur is in the land of Shinar, the same region, more than likely it's one of his cities. Okay? He's ruling over this region, which tells us that it pro- probably is predominantly a Hamite city. Okay? The descendants of Ham are living there, because okay? Nimrod is a descendant of Ham. But here in this Hamite city, this wicked city, Ur, under the rule of Nimrod, we find this man, Terah, raising his family. Terah, as we said, a descendant of Shem. Now, the commentators suggest that they were probably shepherds, and that's why they're living there, okay? Because this is a fertile plain right beside the river Euphrates, and so they're probably living there, raising their flocks. But in any case, they're living in the vicinity of this wicked city, perhaps even now living in the city itself. Now, as descendants of Shem, we would expect them to have a better knowledge of God, a purer knowledge of God, than the other people around them. Why? Because of what God said, okay, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 26, okay, that God would be found amongst the descendants of Shem. And so we would expect them to have a better knowledge of God, a purer, sweeter relationship with God. But according to Joshua chapter 24, even they have begun to be corrupted. By idolatry. Just turn over there, Joshua 24. I know we're turning into quite a few passages this morning. But Joshua chapter 24 and verse 2. <clears throat> this is Joshua. He says this. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. So Joshua 24 makes it clear that even Abraham's family is beginning to be corrupted by this idolatry. They themselves are worshipping idols. And so the point is it's here in this wicked city that we find this man Abraham growing up and it's here that God calls him. You put all these things together and it doesn't really seem like a man that God would choose. Now, this is the man God chooses. Okay? Abraham is a man whose name means exalted father, and yet he has no children. Indeed, his wife, Sarah, is barren. He's a man who's not the eldest son, probably the youngest, and so logically he shouldn't receive any blessing. He's a nobody, and he's living in a wicked, sinful city amongst wicked, sinful people, and even his mem- members of his own family are now worshipping idols. And so the question then is, why does God choose him? I mean, that's the question that came to my mind this week. Because I'm looking at all this and looking at his history, looking at who Abraham is. You go, why does God all of a sudden in chapter 12 say to him in verse 1, Now the Lord said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. Why does God all of a sudden pick Abraham? And that's the second point this morning. Why did God choose Abraham? Abram. You see, at first glance, there doesn't seem to be a reason, does there? There doesn't seem to be a reason why God would choose him. And so was this then just a completely random choice? You know, did God just arbitrarily decide, he looked down at all the sins of Shem and he went, pick Abraham. 
was this God just making a random decision? And indeed, as you read the commentators, some would have us believe that that's the case. That this is a completely random choice here to pick Abraham. To be the father of the nation of Israel. To be the one through whom the Lord Jesus Christ would come. The Messiah. And bring salvation to man. That God randomly chose this man. Now, some would have us believe that Abraham himself was steeped in this idolatry. That he had no knowledge of God. He's going up and worshipping the moon god at the ziggurat. He has no knowledge of the true God. He had no desire to follow the true God. Until all of a sudden, at random, God chose him, calling him to be his servant. That's the opinion of some. Now, the more I studied it this week and considered the passage, the more this didn't sit right with me. It didn't sit right with me. You see, we may not be told exactly why God chose Abraham here in the Scriptures. You know, we have plenty of other examples of men and women who are chosen by God and from them we can see clearly there's always a reason. There's always a reason behind God's choice. See, I don't really understand why we have to jump to the worst conclusion concerning Abraham instead of the best conclusion. Neither is talked about. Neither is explained to us in the Word of God. Why do we jump to the worst conclusion? As I said, when we look through the Word of God and we look at the examples of the men and women that God chooses, there's always a reason behind God's choice. Noah, for instance, we looked at him in chapter 6. He wasn't chosen at random, was he? God chose him because of his relationship with the Lord. Go back there, chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, just read with me from verse 8. We'll start back in verse 7 actually. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. God didn't just choose Noah at random. God chose Noah. God showed grace to Noah, choosing him to be the man who would build the ark and and spare mankind. God chose Noah because of his relationship with the Lord. It wasn't just that, you know, he was just he was more deserving. It wasn't that. Okay, this was not just some random choice. God chose Noah because of his faith. Noah's heart was tender towards the Lord. When everyone else on earth is turning away from the Lord. Noah is seeking the Lord. His heart is right before the Lord. You know, this was why God chose him. Noah Noah was declared righteous by God. Why? Because of his faith. His faith, and he lived that faith before men. He was upright before men. And he was someone God could use. You know, of course, it's not just Noah we see this. We saw the same thing with God's choice of the family of Shem. We've seen it already. Chapter 9, verse 26. Okay, God chose the family of Shem. Why not Jephthah? Oh, Japheth, sorry. Why not uh, Ham? Why did God choose Shem? He chose Shem to be the godly lion because of his relationship with the Lord. It says there in chapter 9, verse 26, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. He was Shem's God. 
Shem had a relationship with the Lord. He sought after him. He was a man of faith. Hence the reason God chose him to be the one through whom the line would come. Later on, we get to Jacob and Esau. God chooses Jacob over Esau. Esau's the firstborn. Logically, he should be the one through whom the blessing comes. It should be his blessing. It should logically be through him that the promised seed comes. But what does God do? God rejects Esau and he chooses Jacob. He rejects Esau. Why? Because God saw what was in his heart. Esau was a man more concerned with the sinful pleasures of this world than he was with the spiritual. In Hebrews chapter 12, it describes him as a fornicator and a profane man. Just go over there. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verse 16. Hebrews 12, verse 16. It says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Describes him as being a fornicator, as a profane person. He didn't have any interest in the spiritual. He's only concerned with the temporal. And so God rejected him, and instead God chose his brother Jacob. But you know, was Jacob more deserving? Is that why God chose him? No. He was a sinner just like his brother, wasn't he? He was a liar. He was a trickster. God chose him because Jacob had a desire for the spiritual. As you look at his life, he had a desire for the spiritual. That's why God chose him over his brother. You see, God knew Jacob would be a man of faith. Now we could go on. We could look at David, couldn't we? David, the youngest of all of his brothers. He's the youngest and yet God chooses David to be the king. Why? Well, remember what God said to Samuel? Don't look at the outward appearance. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Let's just read it because it's such a wonderful verse. 1 Samuel 16. First Samuel 16 verse 7. We'll start in verse 6. It says, It came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab. And said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not in his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him, for the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And God said to Samuel, He said, Samuel, I'm not concerned with the outward stature of a man, I'm looking at the hearts. You see, the point is, all the way through the Scriptures, what's God looking at? The heart, as He makes a choice. He's looking at the heart of a man. And so the point is, when it comes to Abraham, it must be true. The same must be true. God doesn't just randomly change. God has always dealt like this with man, and so the same must be true here with Abraham. God doesn't just randomly choose someone. God reveals Himself to those who... Seek after him. Hebrews 11, verse 6. It says he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Everywhere we look through the word of God, we see this is true. The man God calls us, the man calls, sorry, the man God uses is someone who is a man of faith. It's someone whose heart is soft, that someone who is seeking after the Lord. You see, what that tells us is that there is more 
to Abraham here than what we uh, at first see. There's more to Abraham. Okay, there's something about him that stands out to God, that makes him the man that stands out amongst all the descendants of Shem. God's eyes are upon him. You see, Abraham must have been a man whose heart was soft towards the Lord. A man who was ready to hear and obey the word of the Lord. Now, according to Jewish tradition, that's exactly what Abraham was. Jewish tradition tells us that as a young man, Abraham opposed the worship of idols, even when it was found in his own home. Now, the commentator Meyer writes this. He says, according to these stories, which, if not literally true, are no doubt based on substructum of fact, as a young man, Abraham offered an uncompromising opposition to the evil practices which were rife, not only in the land, but in his father's house. He broke the helpless idols in pieces. He refused to bow before the subtle element of fire at the bidding of the monarch and under the penalty of martyrdom. Now, obviously, we have no record of this in Scripture, so we can't claim this to be fact. This is Jewish tradition. This is what they say about Abraham. But, you know, while it's not recorded in the Word of God, there's nothing inconsistent about it either. Nothing inconsistent about it. This would make perfect sense as to why God chooses Abraham. The same commentator goes on, he says, there is nothing at all of this in Scripture, but there is nothing inconsistent with it. On the contrary, as the peculiar movements of a planet suggest the presence of some celestial body of definite size, which is yet hidden from view in the depths of space, so the mature character, the faith, And the ready obedience of this man, when he first comes under our notice, convince us that there must have been a long period of severe trial and testing. See, that's the point. We may not be able to see the background, but you can see that there must have been a background because of his faith, because of his obedience. The way he responds suggests to us that he's already seeking after God. You know, are we supposed to believe that Abraham is a wicked idolater going up to worship the moon god each day at the ziggurat there in Ur, that he has no knowledge of God, no understanding of who God is, and then suddenly at random God one day speaks to him and Abraham abandons everything because God spoke to him. Now, without doubt, God speaking to him would have been a shock, yes, it would have been a shock, and maybe it would have led him to start seeking after the Lord. But to believe that he would suddenly abandon everything for a God he didn't know, well, we know that human nature is not like that, is it? We know that that's not human nature. That's not how we respond. Man, we have to, we have to grow in our maturity, don't we? We have to grow in our relationship with the Lord. You see, clearly Abraham had a soft heart. A heart that was prepared to receive the word of the Lord. He was ready to seek after God, which made him prepared and ready to receive this call and obey by faith. Now, here is 11, records for us how he by faith obeyed this command. Just go over there. Here is 11. Here is 11. Verse 8 says this. It says, By faith, Abraham 
when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. That's the faith of Abraham. God called him, and he dropped everything, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. He obeyed. Complete obedience, complete trust in the Lord. You know, it says in the Scriptures that by faith he was declared righteous. It's his faith that made him righteous before God. He was a man of faith. See, God didn't just choose Abraham at random. God chose him because his heart was tender, because he was ready to receive the word and step out by faith. And tonight we're going to go on and look at that calling God gives him. You know, this morning as we consider the man Abraham, as we consider God's chosen servant, you know, we see clearly the kind of person that God is looking for. You know, God's not concerned with how old we are. God is not concerned with where we live not concerned with our background. He's not concerned with any of those things. What God is looking for is men and women, young and old, whose hearts are soft and tender and ready to step out by faith and obey Him. Isaiah 66 and verse 2, it says this, But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. You see, God is looking for someone whose heart is soft, someone who is ready to tremble at his word and step out by faith. You know, I wonder today, are we that person? Is our heart soft and tender before the Lord? Are we ready to obey the call of the Lord upon our lives and step out by faith? Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we thank you for the man Abraham, this man who you would later on in Scripture call your friend. Lord, we thank you for him. We thank you, Lord, for his uh, faith stepping out in obedience to you. His heart was soft and tender and ready to receive that call. Lord, may we learn from that example. May, Lord, you help us today to have hearts that are soft and ready to receive your word, to obey your call upon our lives, Lord. Lord, may you work in our hearts now as we close, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.